Psalm chapter 14, would you hear with me the word of God? For the choir director, or perhaps better translated, unto the end, a psalm of David. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt, they have committed abominable deeds. There is no one who does good. The Lord has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. Do all the workers of wickedness not know who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord? There they are in great dread. For God is with the righteous generation. You would put to shame the counsel of the afflicted, but the Lord is his refuge. Oh, that the salvation of Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord restores his captive people, Jacob will rejoice. Israel will be glad. We don't know for sure what is happening in the background of this psalm. There, there are commentators and biblical scholars who almost want to rush past the biblical text to the background of the text. And David doesn't give us the background of the text. And, and that's okay. We It might be any of the times that he's on the run, that he's having trouble with King Saul. Perhaps it's when his men are on the run and he encounters Nabal, literally the Hebrew word for fool, so Nabal, whose name means fool, when he refuses to feed David and his men. You recall that ten days later, God takes care of Nabal and David ends up marrying Abigail, Nabal's wife. We're, we're not given the immediate context. And if you read commentaries and study Bibles, you can end up spinning your plates and your wheels trying to figure out exactly what the situation is. And the reason we're not given the situation is because it's meant to apply to all sorts of situations. It, it's written... To the people of God, not just in David's day and in David's situation, but the people of God down through the ages, unto the end. Garland Wilson says that this psalm is an extended meditation on the folly of the wicked who deny the effective existence of God. The psalm, if we were to categorize it, is one of lament. It's a passionate expression of grief or sorrow over the hardships that God's people face in a fallen or a corrupt world. By the way, this is just an aside, Christianity is the only faith system in the world that allows its adherents, those who follow it, to honestly grapple with the reality of suffering. Tim Keller writes in Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering, Christianity teaches that contra-fatalism, suffering, is overwhelming. Contra-Buddhism, suffering is real. Contra-Karma, suffering is often unfair. But contra-Secularism, suffering is meaningful. There's a purpose to it. And if faced rightly, it can drive us like a nail deep into the love of God and into more stability and spiritual power than you can imagine. If the world gave you everything you were looking for, then would you look for God? Would Would you run to the heart of God? 
And David is existing in a world that is opposed to him. It is a, he's a man with a heart for God, and he exists in a world that does not have a heart for God. In fact, it opposes people who have a heart for God. Later we'll see it consumes people who have a heart for God. So his, his heart cry of suffering in a corrupt world drives him to verse 7, which concludes with this exclamation point of hope. David says, how do I navigate this world that is so opposed to the people of God? I keep my eyes fixed on the world to come through God himself. The Lord will save his people. In the Lord, not in the world, my hope abounds. So to live with hope in this present age. Does anybody, anybody need hope this morning? Okay, maybe it's just your pastor. But I, I, I like to have a reason to hope. And I, I, I like to think most people need a reason to hope. I've told you before about uh, the dean at Virginia Tech that I worked, worked with for some time. He was a, a theoretical physicist. And we had a four and a half hour flight to California. And we got into the matters of religion and faith and how old the earth is, and all these different matters. And I said, we got down to the issue of hope, and I said, well, why in the world do you have reason to get up in the morning? I mean, if that's really what you believe, just check out now. I mean, that's a pretty sad existence. There is no maker, there's no accountability, there's no hope beyond the grave, then what are you doing? And he said, well, you know, that's a great question. I just have to hope that there's a reason to have hope. There is. It's, here it is. So to live with hope in this present age, there's, there's three things that David shows us we must do. First, we've got to understand that every descendant of a human father is hopelessly corrupted by sin. Every descendant of a human father. That would be every human being on the planet, right? Okay, just, just to verify. Secondly, we must expect the world to try to consume and frustrate us. And thirdly, we must trust in the Lord who vindicates and saves his people. First, we've got to understand that every descendant of a human father is hopelessly corrupted by sin. In verse 1, David says, People who fall into the category of the fool, singular, that they have said in their heart, there's no God. Fool means to be not just ignorant mentally, but to be willfully and morally deficient. It means to be ignorant of what matters most. Kidner, a commentator, says it conveys a, an aggressive perversity. Kyle and Delich say it signifies the very extreme and depth of human depravity. We did not need Martin Luther or John Calvin or any of the Reformation theologians to tell us that humanity is radically depraved, impacted and corrupted by their sin in every part of their being. All we needed to do was read King David in Psalm 14. The one who is a fool has said, notice it's, it's, it's in the perfect tense, he has said it and he will always say it. The fool has once for all said, it's a settled issue for the fool, there is no God. He has said and will always say, there's no God. For as long as one remains a fool, he will deny the existence of God. Notice that the fool speaks in his heart. The heart is the place of thinking and desiring and, and willing to do something. 
The reason that people deny God is not because they lack ample evidence for His existence. It is because they have sin-twisted, self-absorbed hearts that have turned inward on themselves and ceased to look upward to God. Romans 1 tells us that they suppress the truth that points clearly to the existence of God, and they are therefore without excuse. Professing to be wise, verse 22, they are fools. The mouth of the fool, notice, may not say there is no God. It's the heart. It's the song in his heart. In fact, the fool might go go to church on Sunday. But on Monday through Saturday, he lives as though there is no God. The evidence that his heart cries out, there is no God, is not that he would say to you, I'm an atheist. It is, it is found in his deeds. He rejects not just any God, by the way, but the personal God, Yahweh, the Lord God, who notices and is aware of the affairs of men. Do you see what David did? The, the first line, he says, the fool singular. And we, we can all tolerate that there are some fools out there. But he transitions from the singular to the plural when he says they are corrupt. Now, now you're telling me there's, a, there's more of them. They are corrupt and they do abominable deeds. So there's more than one fool in the world and fools are known by their corruption and their abominable deeds. This means that being a fool in God's eyes, church, it's not about your SAT score. It's not about how many books you've read. It's not about athletic success. But it's about a healthy and deep reverence for God. The word corrupt reminds us of the condition of the world before God ever sent the flood in Genesis 6. You remember the flood? Right? Noah gets on a boat. They're the only family that's rescued and sort of a restart on humanity and It wasn't long after they got off the boat, we had a second fall all over again. Eve falls by partaking of the fruit. Noah gets drunk with the fruit of the vine, and humanity descends headlong again, showing us that the only remedy that we would have is Christ. But before the flood, we read in Genesis 6, 12, God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. Same word that's used in Psalm 14, verse 1. For all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. As I was getting up to preach, I heard my son say, to my wife Stacy, Mom, what does corrupt mean? He was reading the title slide. To be corrupt is to be ruined. It's to be spoiled, to be destroyed from the inside out. Corruption is a twisting of humanity such that we do not, will not, and cannot honor God in our own strength. We, we can't bless the world. We damage and spoil what we touch. And their deeds, because they are corrupt, the things that they do are abominable. This means detestable or abhorrent to God. Now, I don't know what you mean, what you find to be abominable, or what you find to be abhorrent. But for me, I got the picture, I was trying to think, how would I illustrate this? And I got the picture of a piece of coconut entering my mouth. I hate coconut. Now, you're one way or the other with coconut, but to me, it's detestable. It's abhorrent. Its texture is bad. Its taste is foul. It is not good. German chocolate cake is foul because somebody put coconut on it. I mean, it's beautiful. Chocolate and sugar and butter, and then you cover it with this 
It's like hair-like texture on top of the cake. And it, it's repulsive, and it comes out of my mouth. And, and this, is, this is the deeds of the fool in the eyes or the mouth of God. He's bleh. So David tells us, David tells us that the deeds of the fool are like coconut in the mouth of your pastor to a holy God. The righteous want to live a life, however, that honors God. So David tells us there are those who are corrupt, those who are fools, those who deny God. And then at the end of verse 1, he says this, there is none, no one who does good. Now, I don't know about you, but at the end of verse 1, I want to say, now you stop right there, mister. Did you say there's nobody that does good? So are you talking about just the fools? Or did you just, did you just bait and switch me there and say nobody does good? You, do you mean nobody does good? Or just none of those people out there? And to answer this question, David takes us from what he says to what God says in verse 2. He takes us... To heaven. The Lord has looked down from heaven. Now this is important. There's, there's a lot of theology to be done in verse 2 just from those words. The Lord has looked down from heaven. What does it show us? One, it shows us that God has to look down when he looks at us because God is always over us. He is over us in power and beauty and glory and splendor and authority and holiness. Whatever then that the Lord would say about us matters infinitely more than what any of us would say about us. If God says we have a problem, then guess what? It doesn't matter if we think we have a problem or not. If God's conclusion is that humanity has a problem, then humanity has a problem. It also tells us not only that God is over us, it tells us that whatever the Lord would conclude about us in his investigation of us will not change. He has looked down. Again, it's in the perfect tense in the Hebrew, which means God has once and for all looked upon humanity. We can think that, oh, we're centuries after this was written and now our society is so advanced, it's so progressed. We're not as savage as we once were. Tell that to the 41 million children aborted in the world in 2018. Whatever God concludes in his investigation will stand. So God is over us. His conclusions are final throughout all generations. And finally, it tells us that the Lord's judgments are just. They are based on the facts. The Lord looks down. The, the word to look down here, there's a lots of words in Hebrew for seeing or looking. The word that's used here means to lean in with the intention of carefully examining something. Now, now God is God. He sees everything. He doesn't need to tell us that he leaned in to carefully examine something. So why does he tell us? He tells us so that we would know that his conclusions are just. He tells us to remove any doubt that we might have about the Lord's conclusion. So God is over us. Whatever he concludes will not change. And whatever he concludes is not just willy-nilly out there somewhere. It is based on the evidence, on the facts. So the Lord looks down. Who does he look at? Do you see it there in verse 2? Upon the sons of men. 
He looks at every human being with a biological father to see if any of them understands, or literally, if they act wisely. To act wisely is to do the opposite of what the fool does. Not to just admit that God is, but to seek Him. He's looking for those who seek after God. It's interesting to me that he doesn't say he's looking to see if there's any who are perfect. He just says, is there anybody out there who genuinely seeks God? Is there one, Kyle and Delich summarize it this way, is there one who shows discernment in thought and act? One to whom fellowship with God is the highest good? This is God's question. And he delights in such persons, and certainly none would escape his longing search. So God looks down to see if any seek him. And verse 3 tells us in every possible way that God finds no one who seeks him. All have turned aside from God and his ways. And together as a unit, meaning all together, they've become corrupt, rotten. Or smelly. It's a different word for corrupt that's used here compared to verse 1. And then finally, there is no one who does good. Are you really saying no one, God? And then he adds, no, not even one. Five times in verse 3, God says, nobody, 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 nobody seeks after This is hard for our flesh to hear, is it not? We want there to be good people out there. We want average Joes to be okay. But it is fundamentally important for us to understand where our help and our hope comes from, church. It does not come from the world. It does not come from average Joes. It comes from the Lord God Almighty. We are tempted to think, because we don't want it to be that bad, we are tempted to think that most people just aren't that bad off. But God tells us there's not one that seeks Him. There is no neutral category. You are either a God seeker because the grace of God has rescued you and made you His own, or you are a fool who denies effectively the presence of God with your deeds, and you are corrupt and you are headed for hell. God gives us no in-between, which should have massive implications for how we see the world and what we're really compelled to do and what we're motivated to do with the life that we have left. Paul quotes these verses in Romans chapter 3, verses 10 and 12 verbatim, to argue that every human being, Jew and Gentile, without Christ, stands condemned before God. You see, church, our, our, our flesh wants to trim the absolutism of this text because of its massive implications. If Psalm 14, 1-3 is true, then it makes no sense to place your ultimate hope in education, politics, psychology, economics, military might, your job, or anything else. If Psalm 14, 1 through 3 is true, then the people of God should go all in for God. We should go all in for God. It means that whatever we learn at the state university about humanity and psychology is not oriented toward God and therefore is going to be deficient in some way and that God's word and what he says about humanity stands over whatever you learned at the state you about humanity. There are times that I get frustrated with Christians 
who are interested more in what Freud says about humanity than what a God says about humanity. What God says about humanity trumps what your education teacher taught you about little children and what they need in terms of discipline and fathers involved in the home. Is this on this morning? Your, your secular preparation is always subject to the sovereign word of Christ. He wrote the book on humanity. He knows the mind and the soul and the human heart better than Sigmund Freud or any other pop psychologist ever could, would, or will. And so when you listen, it doesn't mean don't go to the state university. It doesn't mean don't go be trained. It doesn't mean they don't know anything. Of course, they know a lot. But it's always got to be filtered through the grid of what God has said. And they have a fundamentally different view of humanity that leads to a fundamentally different result in how they want to train and equip people than the view that God has. The solution that people need is not a little more education, it's not a little more self-esteem, it's not a little more positive reinforcement. The solution that humanity needs is to come to a living relationship with a holy God that they do not seek. There is no lasting hope to be found among the sons of men unless God does something. Period. Secondly, we must expect the world to try... It's not, it's not just that the world doesn't seek God. They get their fill consuming the people of God. We must expect the world to try to consume and frustrate the people of God. In verse 4, David asks, Do all the people of verses 1 through 3, these workers of wickedness, really not know what they are doing to God's people? Do they, do they not even see it? They eat up the people of God my people, it says, like they eat bread. It's just what the world does. They consume the people of God. Rather than call upon the Lord, who provides in Christ the bread of life, they have their fill by feasting on the people of God. And as the first half of verse 6 adds, they like to frustrate or put to shame the plans of the people of God or the counsel of the people of God. They might invent their own gods, by the way. Buddha or whoever else they want to worship, but they will not call upon the name of Yahweh, the personal God, the one true God, the creator, the redeemer, the healer, the holy one. In verse 6, the people of God are called the afflicted or the poor. The word does not mean only financial poverty, but a poverty of spirit. Jesus confirms this in Matthew 5 verse 3 when he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Following God, church, begins with understanding that apart from Him, we are nothing. Apart from God, we are poor, we are afflicted, we're destitute. And in this world, as we endeavor to serve God on God's terms, we've got to know that the world will try to consume us and frustrate us as we seek to honor God and follow His design. Even in the United States of America, this is true. Kevin DeYoung writes this, persecution is the normal experience of every Christian everywhere. From stiff fines to family shame, to being kicked off of college campuses, to laws against sharing our faith, to unjust trials, to public mockery and scorn, to arrest and brutality. If we faithfully follow Jesus in this world, we will all 
face persecution at some point in our Christian discipleship. Even American Christians, if they are really Christians, will have crosses to carry. 2 Timothy 3.12, Paul said the same thing. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. What cross are you carrying in this broken world for the cause of Christ our King? Living for Christ in a world that is opposed to Him is costly. Christian cake bakers and florists have spent the last several years of their lives in legal battles because they refuse to use their creative talents to celebrate something that God rejects. It's okay to hope, church, that our children and our children's children will live in a country and operate as freely as we do now, but it is unwise to assume that they will. God has spoken. Men and the systems that they create, man-made systems, ultimately lead to the consumption of the people of God. This is already happening in relatively small ways in our own country. Unions use the dues of Christian workers to advocate and fund things that they should not support. The government requires now health insurance companies to have premiums cover things that we do not support. A portion of the federal taxes that we dutifully pay go to underwrite a barbaric practice that we simply cannot support. The world works against and preys upon people who follow God because the world fears people who depend upon God rather than upon the world. Yes, it's going to cost you something, church, to prize and pursue, pursue God above everything else. But we must not sell out to the world for a comfortable life now. And we do not have to. This is the lie of Satan. Live your best life now. Cash all your chips in on today. Eat, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. No, tomorrow we gain everlasting life in a new heavens and a new earth that comes out of Zion. And that changes everything. Verse 7. We trust in the Lord who vindicates and saves his people. We trust in the Lord who vindicates and saves his people. It's not my retirement account that vindicates and saves me. It's not my career advancement that vindicates and saves me. It's not the growth of North Roanoke Baptist Church that vindicates and saves me. As much as I would long for this church to explode in the Roanoke Valley and to see families come to saving faith in Christ by the dozens and the hundreds, I, I still pray that happens. I'm looking forward to that day. But that's not my salvation. My salvation comes from Zion. It comes from God fulfilling his promise to his people. In verse 5, David takes our attention from the here and now to the there. Did you see that in verse 5? There. They're consuming the people of God in verse 4. But in verse 5, there is a time that's different. There marks out a time in the future when the patience of God runs out and he pours out his wrath on all the ungodly. Sometimes standing for the Lord means being rejected by everyone else. The promise of verse 5 is that God himself will vindicate the one that hopes in God against all the odds. Those who have consumed the people of God will be confronted by God's everlasting fire. Those who have played at church but never really lived for God will stand before him and give an account. 
when God comes in judgment, those who have oppressed God's people, do you see it? They will be in great dread. They will literally fear a great fear. Those who've spent their lives denying God in their hearts will face the great I am. Spurgeon says it this way, as denying the existence of fire does not prevent its burning a man who is in it. So doubting the existence of God will not stop the judge of all the earth from destroying the rebel who breaks his law. Church, there's a time and a place of coming judgment. A time when all will stand before the ruler of the universe and give an accounting of their lives. As Brooks said once, on earth there are atheists many. In hell there are not any. Now look at the promise of the second half of verse 5. While God comes in judgment against those who oppress his people, he is with the righteous generation. Those who seek the Lord and his salvation will have the Lord with them when his judgment comes. They will be saved from God's coming wrath. Romans 5, 9, 1 Thessalonians 1, 10. Why? Because verse 6 tells us he is our refuge, our hiding place. He's not only, by the way, our hiding place in judgment, when judgment comes, he's also our hiding place right now. We don't know why God spared Brian Paul Hamus in the middle of a horrible situation, but we know that he was there serving God and that God was his refuge, his hiding place. Perhaps God made him literally invisible to those who entered the room to, to wreck the havoc that they wreaked on that day. God is our refuge and should That should give us confidence to live for him unashamedly, even in a world that wants to consume us. It means we must not trade a blessed future with God for acceptance in the present world today. We cannot accept the world's lies about God and God's ways to be accepted by a world that will soon stand before their maker and quake with fear. Instead, look at verse 7. We look with confidence to the day when our salvation is complete, when Christ the King comes out of Zion. Zion is the dwelling place of the Lord. It's the place of His throne. It's the seat of His authority, both in times when the temple was located in earthly Jerusalem and in times when it is not. David is speaking of the day. When the Lord brings judgment against the enemies of his people and salvation to his people. The righteous generation, verse 5. The afflicted, verse 6. When God literally, verse 7, overturns our captivity. The world often feels like a prison to the people of God. God, I, I just can't long for you to make things right. I feel trapped. To the one who wants to seek after and live for God, this doesn't feel like home. But one day, this world will be remade better than even the Garden of Eden as a place to forever worship our Lord and our King. God, come from Zion and overturn my captivity and deliver me to just live for you. That is my 
John says it this way in Revelation 21, 2 and 3. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle, the dwelling place of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and we will be his people, and God himself will be among them. To live with hope in a corrupt world. We don't look to the world. We look to the coming of Christ our Lord and King. Knowing he will vindicate and save his people forevermore. Now this raises a question. Does it not church? I mean if you've been reading Psalm 14 carefully. Do you feel the question that Psalm 14 raises? If every one of the sons and daughters of men is corrupt. Devoid of understanding, wicked and does not seek God. Where in the world did the righteous generation come from? If, if all humanity is corrupt, denying God in their heart and deeds, how in the world does God have anyone to call his people? Verse 4. Left to ourselves, we are hopeless. There's no amount of good that we could ever do to undo the corruption of our hearts that turns even the good we would do into something about ourselves. But God doesn't leave us hopeless. Left to ourselves, we are hopeless, but God doesn't leave us to ourselves. God doesn't just look down on the sons of men. He then comes down to the sons of men in the person of Jesus Christ, His Son. He sends the substitute. He sends the remedy. As Paul says, He made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that we might be the righteousness of God in Him. It's the greatest exchange ever in the history of the world. It's the greatest news ever told. The Father sent His Son to die in our place so that we could be adopted as His sons and daughters. Christ the King came and lived the perfect life that you didn't. He died the death that you deserved to die. And by the same power that God raised him from the dead, he will raise you up to new life today. If you will turn from your sin, stop worshiping yourself, and give yourself over to living for God. And in that moment, you will be able to say with John, see how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we could be called the children of God. This morning, if you're still living in the category of fool, don't be foolish any longer. Run to the God who sent His only Son so that you could stop being a fool and start being a son or daughter of God.